right, if you'll uh, take your Bible and open to 1 Timothy 4, if you haven't already, I, I want to talk with you, I look at 1 Timothy 4 and talk with you a little bit about our priorities as a, as a church. As you know, we have uh, been talking a little lately about our culture as a church. We've been calling this series uh, Gospel Culture, and uh, thank you so much for your, your patience with me. I know that we've been kind of going here and there on Sunday mornings and uh, looking at different passages, and I appreciate you uh, being patient with me. But uh, we uh, really, w- what I've been wanting to do is give kind of a, a vision for the church. So this is my first year here, and uh, I wanted to begin a while back by talking about the importance of prayer, and then uh, we spent some little bit of time in Luke and the Old Testament to see the glory of Jesus And the past few weeks, I've been wanting to talk about what kind of church does God want us to be. If if someone asks, what is the vision for CBC? Uh, This series isn't all there is for sure, but it is a part of it. And uh, maybe, I hope you've noticed that as we've been working our way through what kind of church we want to be, we haven't been talking a lot about programs or projects, uh, because that's not what drives the vision. But instead... Uh, What we're talking about is glorifying God by becoming the kind of people that he wants us to be. Uh, Really, uh, we've just been talking about living in a way that reflects the gospel. That is gospel culture. Gospel culture is living our day-to-day lives in a way that reflects what we say we believe. And uh, what we prioritize is a big part of that. I want to talk about uh, priorities because what we prioritize is a big part of how our culture uh, is shaped. A culture is shaped by its priorities. Uh, What comes first in our lives, what we choose, what we make sacrifices for, really reflects what we actually believe and ends up shaping our entire lives, our culture, uh, you might say, almost more than anything else, I think. Uh, In fact, I I was thinking, I've lived in a few different cultures now, And uh, one of the things you notice is that on the surface, they have a number of things in common. So uh, different cultures, in terms of what they they say they might value, they often will say they value uh, very similar things. That's not always true, uh, but it is true a lot of times. Uh, For example, uh, most cultures would say they value family uh, or we value working or whatever. There aren't very many cultures that I've been in that wouldn't say they value family or value working or value even relationships. We're for family, we're for relationships. But then what you find out is that the way those cultures actually work on a day-to-day basis is so different. Even though they say they value the same thing, the way the cultures are uh, is very different. They make very different choices. And one of the reasons the cultures are so different is because of differences in priorities, actually. Uh, What comes first, what we make sacrifices for, what we choose when we have to choose. So uh, many cultures would say we value relationships. Even the, uh, I'm sure the American culture, the Western culture, if there is, if you could say it like that, the Western culture would say, yeah, we value relationships. There's not many people that wouldn't say that. But the difference comes when you have to choose between people and relationships and something else. The priorities, that's where a lot of the differences start showing up. Even many Christians, actually, you go to many churches, it's sometimes hard to tell because they often will say the same things. This is what we're about. They would say they have certain priorities, 
and they sound different. They, they sound similar, but the real difference comes down to prior, priorities. What do we actually prioritize as a church? What do we value most? That's going to shape our life together as a church. And as believers, even though we're all different, across the board, there should be some things that we prioritize here at Cornerstone. Like what? That's the question. What should be priority for us in terms of our everyday lives, what we pursue, what matters most? What should we be willing to sacrifice for? What should come first? Because something does come first. We all, we all have priorities, and those priorities are shaping our lives, whatever actually comes first, because there is a lot to do. We're living in a world now with lots of options. Even this morning, actually, our family had options. <laughs> our son's playing basketball, and he has a basketball game right now at this point. We, we, we have all kinds of options every day, and so we have to make choices. If we're going to live in this world, we absolutely have to make choices. And we're usually not very good at making choices. That's, that's the problem, honestly, because we have the wrong priorities. The world is telling us to prioritize this, and we listen sometimes, and we don't even realize we're being governed by the world's priorities. And besides all that noise, our own desires are telling us to prioritize this, and our desires are broken. And so we have to go back to God God who made the world, God who knows what's important in this world. We have to go back to God. God knows what we should want, what we should prioritize. What does God say we should want? What does God say should be our priorities? That's the question. And one place we find an answer is 1 Timothy 4, where Paul's talking to a young pastor, Timothy, obviously. 1 Timothy is written by Paul. That's a good family trivia question. Yesterday we were going through the New Testament. Who wrote Luke? Luke. Who wrote Matthew? Matthew. Who wrote 1 Timothy? And uh, one of our kids fell for it, Timothy. But it's Paul. It's Paul who wrote 1 Timothy. He wrote 1 Timothy to Timothy, a young pastor that he left in a big city, Ephesus, and who's facing a lot of pressure. It's a bad city. And the church itself is having problems. There's a lot of false teaching. And so this is not an easy situation for Timothy. And Paul's writing to help him know how to be a faithful pastor in that context. And in verses 6 to 16 of chapter 4, you see he gives specific instructions. He gives a lot of specific instructions. There's at least 11 commands in these verses. And so this would be a passage you would go to if you want to talk about what it takes to be a faithful pastor. But I don't think it's just for pastors because Paul actually tells Timothy in this passage to set a believer, set an example for believers. That's one of the commands, verse 12. So there's going to be parts that are pretty specific to the leader's role in the church in these verses. But there are also going to be some things that Paul says that should be true of all of us. And verses 7 and 8, those are the verses I want to look at in particular they are things that should be true of all of us. As Paul talks to Timothy about his priorities, really. It's kind of like in the middle of the confusion there in Ephesus, false teaching, wicked city, Paul's clarifying. He tells Timothy what he should want, why he should want it, and how to get it. What he should want, why he should want, want it, and how, how to get it. And what he says applies to all of us, not just Timothy. This is a clarifying passage for all of us. This should be what we choose, what we sacrifice for. If you think of your life like a table, 
Imagine something uh, with me for a minute. If you think of your life like a table, and everything you could possibly do is on that table. Uh, everything you could possibly do. So go to school, get a job, eat, make money, uh, go on vacation, buy a home. It's all there on the table. And then somebody tells you that you have to take everything off the table except for one thing. The one thing that matters most. So this is your one thing to do. This is your, this is your priority, the thing that's left on the table. What is it? You ask Paul in this passage, I think he says it is to be godly. Verse 7, Timothy, train yourself to be godly. That's the command. And Paul loved Timothy. Of course, they had a relationship like a, a father and a son. So obviously he wanted what was best for him. And what he wanted was for him to be godly. And you can imagine there were lots of things Timothy needed to do there in Ephesus. But, what, but this is what he was to focus on. I like how one pastor puts Paul's main exhortation in these verses he says, you will do the thing of greatest value if with all your zeal and ability, you devote yourself to godliness alone. That's, that's the challenge. It's like if you have two boxes to pack up all the stuff that's going on in your life. What is uh, non-negotiable and what is negotiable? You have a, a negotiable box, and you have a non-negotiable box, and you're packing up all the stuff that's in your life. And really, there's, at the end of the day, only one thing that goes in the non-negotiable box. <laughs> and some people think the one thing that's supposed to go in there is money, and so that's why they make a priority out of, of money. And some people think the one thing that goes in the non-negotiable box is education, and that's why they make a priority out of education. And some people think it's a good job or comfort, I would say a lot of us think it's comfort. That's our non-negotiable. But as believers, really, when we're thinking the way God wants us to think, we realize it's actually godliness. It's godliness, which is why we make a priority out of godliness. That should be our culture. We need to prioritize godliness. And to help us prioritize godliness, I want us to look at these verses, verses 7 and 8, and answer three questions. First, what is godliness? Second, why is godliness important? And third, how can we become more godly? First, what is godliness? And we have to start here so that we're all on the same page uh, in terms of what we're even talking about because that was one of the problems in Ephesus, actually. There was a wrong definition of godliness. This is part of why Paul had to leave Timothy there to deal with this. Do you have a wrong definition of godliness? A lot of people have a wrong definition of godliness, partly because this is part of how demons work. We're involved in a uh, spiritual warfare. And if you look up at verse 1, Paul explains, this is the context for the command we're looking at. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So this is bad stuff. The teaching of demons. And yet, what are they teaching about exactly? It's kind of surprising. Verse 3, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods God created to be received with thanksgiving. 
which isn't where you would think Paul would go uh, when he talks about the teaching of demons, because he's talking about a kind of religiosity or spirituality even. Part of why Paul's talking to Timothy here in this chapter is because he knows Satan's tricky, and he doesn't just get us off track by saying, hey, you know what, go get drunk or something. Sometimes he gets us off track using religious activity, like here in Ephesus. Paul tells Timothy, there are going to be people who are saying, this is what it means to be spiritual and to be godly. And Paul's saying to Timothy in verse 6, that if he's going to be a, a faithful minister of Christ, he's going to have to point out these wrong ideas of what it means to be godly. He says, if you look at it, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. What things? If you point out these wrong ideas of godliness, which is something we still need to be doing all these years later, because some of the ideas that people have about godliness are very different than the Bible's. I mean, even today, when we talk about godliness, some people think primarily in terms of externals. A lot of people. I know in Africa, uh, for example, many people thought of godliness as having to do with the way you sound when you talk about spiritual things. So if a preacher came up with a certain voice or spoke really dogmatically, passionately, it could be as simple as that. That man's godly. Well, why is he godly? He talks in such a serious way. He must be godly. And I've had people say, even here actually, I can tell this person is godly. And what they're talking about is literally their tone of voice. How they appear, how they look, how they sound, the outside. Others, they think of godliness more as an emotional experience. So maybe I, I can tell someone is godly by looking at the way they sing. It's funny, even when we were in Albania, there were two church groups. They don't have many places for conferences. And so there were two church groups where we were having our conference. And uh, the one pastor from the one group came over to the pastor that was leading our conference. And he was saying, you guys, I can tell you obviously really need, need help. Because it's clear to me that you're not spiritual, and you know how he somehow knew that they weren't spiritual. It was because he didn't think the singing was exciting enough. I can see the way you guys are singing. It's clear you don't have the spirit. That's how some people think of godliness, externals, basically. And you can see there in Ephesus even, people were trying to look godly by emphasizing these rules that aren't even in the Bible. They were making rules where God didn't make rules about what you ate or whether or not you could get married. And then early on in 1 Timothy, in this book, in chapter 1, you see that people were trying to look godly by what they talked about. And what they were talking about was not the Bible. It was all these myths and genealogies, which I'm sure must have sounded spiritual. These guys are intense, and that's why they were talking about it. But that is not what Paul means by godliness. When Paul says, train yourself to be godly, that's not what he's saying we should make a priority out of. When Paul talks about training yourself to be godly, he's not talking about getting really good at arguing small details that don't matter to God. He, he, he's not talking about being super passionate about everything and super passionate about stuff that doesn't even matter in the Bible. He, he, he does, he's not talking about getting great at doing all these extra rules that somebody added to the Bible. He's not talking about learning to talk about God in a certain way with this deep voice that sounds so spiritual. He's not talking about the externals primarily because godliness is not just learning to do all this stuff that makes you look religious on the outside. It's bigger. 
It's much bigger. It's a heart on fire for God, basically. What is godliness? If it's not externals, what is godliness? It starts in the heart. One author puts it like this, this word that Paul uses. He says, the New Testament word for godliness in its original meaning conveys the idea of a personal attitude toward God that results in actions that are pleasing to God. An attitude, it starts there, that results in actions. That's, that's godliness. And how do we know that's godliness? One way we know is because if you look up the actual word that Paul uses there in verse 7 in a dictionary, you see that it has to do with worship. It's made up of two Greek words, the term used here for godliness. Good and worship. So godliness is literally good worship. And of course, when we hear the word worship, it's a religious word for us. Uh, we think of worshiping God. But in Paul's day, they used that word generally uh, just in terms of respect and reverence. Uh, so to the average person in Paul's day, the word godliness that he uses here just meant giving the appropriate respect or reverence to those one has a duty to honor. That is good worship. So for example, your parents, there's a, a certain respect your parents should have because they're your parents. There's a certain respect uh, the president should have because he's the president. And there's a certain respect God should have because he's God. And what happened was that Christians picked up this word godliness that people just use that way and applied it specifically. They, they used it to focus in on our relationship with God. And so when Paul talks about godliness here, he's talking about showing the proper respect and reverence to God in our lives. That's what he's saying we need to make a priority out of it, out of having the right attitude towards God. Is that a priority for you? Your attitude towards God. Is, is that an issue, the issue of first importance? More than anything, we want to have the right heart attitude towards God. Another word you could use to, to describe what Paul's meaning here when he talks about godliness is the word awe. If you were trying to put a definition of godliness together, uh, what does Paul mean in this verse? You're thinking attitude, and part of that attitude is awe. That's how John Calvin defined godliness, actually. He says, godliness is the union, and that's when two things come together, like marriage. Godliness is the marriage of awe and love. And break that down for a minute. What, what is awe? What does it mean when we say we need to make a priority out of being people who are in awe? It's a hard word to define awe if you try to define it for somebody else. You kind of more know it when you experience it. But basically, it's that sense of wonder and amazement and astonishment you get when you see how big and beautiful and magnificent and perfect something is and how small you are as a result. It's a little like fear, all, but normally when we think of fear, we think of it as having to do something with something bad. So Fear makes you want to run away from what you see, where awe is the opposite. Awe doesn't make you shrink back from what you're seeing, but it makes you want more of it. It makes you want to run towards it and adore it and worship it. And that's why you can use the word awe with love the way Calvin does. What's godliness? You remember how Calvin defined it? Godliness is the marriage, the union of awe and love. So it's not just awe and astonishment by itself. It's all of God and love for God. And that awe and love is produced by a knowledge of God and a knowledge of what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. That's 
Calvin's full definition of godliness, and I love it. It's like here you've got this everyday person who uh, starts learning more about God and who God is. And so he's looking at the world because the world shouts out the glory of God, and he's starting to see that it's pointing him in some way to someone greater. And he's looking at the mountains, and he's like, wow, that is the work of God's fingers. And he's looking at the flowers, and he's thinking, man, the mind of God. And he's not just looking at the world. He's looking at God's word because the word is where God reveals his glory most clearly. And for him, he thinks of this book as being like a book of wonders, not just this thing that he needs to read to like check off the, the box. He knows what is in here is amazing. And what amazes him most is the way God has revealed himself through Jesus and Jesus' work on the cross. That is godliness. What is godliness? It's like being awake to how amazing these truths are. Jesus is God and man. The, the, the Trinity God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Justification, the, the wisdom of God in making a way for us as sinners to be saved without compromising his holiness. They're not just words. Godliness, you see, I'm trying to work at giving you a, a bigger picture of what it means to be godliness. Godliness is, is not what it means to be godly. Godliness is, is not just looking religious, and it's not just doing the right thing. It's not just getting good at checking off this list of all the right stuff of, that a good person does. Okay, here's what a good person does. He goes to church, he reads his Bible, he says his prayers. You can do all that and not be godly. Because godliness means you see God's glory in this world and you see God's glory in his word and you trust it's true and it applies to you and you respond in a way that makes sense given what the word the world and Jesus are telling you about God. It means all this information is not just going into your head. It's going into your heart, deep down into your heart. And you're amazed and you're astonished and you want to know more. And you want to have a deeper relationship with God. And more than anything, you want to please him in every area of your life. One old Puritan, he defined a godly person as someone who cherishes God as their most precious treasure. And I like that word, cherishes. He cherishes God. And he regards God as, be, as the being of the greatest magnitude and glory in the universe. So when you think about what godliness means, you need to think of the first three letters, God, in, in these huge, bold print, capital letters. God. God. It's about, it's about God. Godliness is about God. It's not just about doing the right things. It, it involves doing the right things, but it's more than that. It's a life where God is where he should be, at the center. It's like if your life were a solar system. For most people, if their life were a solar system, they're at the center. And even God is kind of revolving around them. But for the godly person, though, God is at the center. God comes first, and everything else is supposed to revolve around him. That's godliness. And I'm saying we should prioritize this. I want to be a person who is in awe of God, who loves God, because I know God, and I'm amazed by what God has done for me through Jesus Christ. This should be our non-negotiable. And, of course, 
obviously there are lots of things to do. That's part of why I'm saying it. There are, there are so many things to pursue. We're living in Orange County, you know. We always used to tell our kids before we uh, moved back to America, we always used to tell them, you know, America's not just Disneyland and the beach. And then we moved to Orange County, and they're like, you are, you're like a liars. <laughs> and so uh, we're living in this place where there's all kinds of uh, things to do, and we have to think, what should be the thing we pursue hardest? What should be our one thing? What should come first? What should we prioritize? Godliness, 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 godliness. Why? Why? That's question number two. Why should we want to be godly? Because Paul gives reasons, and lots of different reasons throughout his letters. But here's a big one, 1 Timothy 4.8. Train yourself to be godly. 1 Timothy 4.8. Why? Verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. And the emphasis is on every, every way. Because that's amazing. What else has value in every way? And to help us feel that, Paul makes a comparison. He says, for while bodily training is of some value. And it's kind of obvious what Paul's saying there. He's, he's making a comparison to show us the value of godliness, and he's comparing it with bodily training. He's trying to motivate Timothy. Train yourself to be godly. Let me show you that why it has value in every way. To point that out, uh, let me think about how it compares to bodily training. That's pretty obvious what he's doing. But what does he mean by bodily training? Because that, be, that part can be a little tricky. Uh, because in the context, he's been talking about guys who are tough on the body. So you remember verse 1. There were these religious people who were saying being spiritual means not getting married and not eating certain foods. And that could be bodily training, I suppose, like bodily discipline. But I don't think that's what Paul means here because Paul says it's of some value. <laughs> bodily training is of some value. And that's not the way he would normally talk about that kind of stuff. Uh, because other places he clearly says that kind of spirituality is of no value. So I don't think Paul's talking about these religious rituals that are hard on the body. He's just talking about physical exercise. You can see verse 9, he says, this this, the saying is trustworthy. It's like a famous quote. Bodily training is of some value. And that quote would have worked in Ephesus because Ephesus was known for their love of sports. And they had all kinds of gymnasiums. If you said you should try to get fit, they would have said, of course, and they knew about how hard people would work to get in physical shape. And Paul's taking that, and he's like, okay, we know bodily training is of some value, but it doesn't compare to the value of godliness if you put them side by side. Fitness is good for you, but godliness is much better. Why? Look at how Paul puts it, how he demonstrates godliness is valuable in every way. He says, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, that, that combination... It holds promise for this life and for the life to come is awesome because what else has value after you die in terms of what you could prioritize right now? That's kind of the problem with everything else. And this is why we prioritize godliness because it's the one thing that has value for the next life, which is the, the longest life. You've got your life here, which is like a dot, and you know this illustration. And you've got eternity, which is like this ever never-ending line. It's this, this like this rope that goes on forever, which makes sense to live for, the dot or, or the line. What do you want to make sacrifices for? If you're going to work for something, which is, which is better, something that lasts 10 seconds or something that lasts 100 years? Paul is saying you need to work for the thing that lasts longer, obviously, and that's only one thing. That, there's only one thing that has rewards that last forever. 
that holds promise for this life and the life to come. If you, if you just take Paul's comparison here, take physical fitness as a contrast, no matter what I do, this body is going to get old. If you've ever done one of those um, face app things on your phone where you uh, take a picture of yourself and you look at what you're looking going to look like older, or you can do it the reverse, and it will uh, make you look what, like what they think you would look like younger. And I kind of wish I looked like what it said I looked like younger. I know I definitely did look like that. But you, you're going to get old. Um, no matter how hard, how hard you, you exercise, your body is eventually going to die and going to get buried in, in the ground. And all the training in the world is not going to change that. And if you're not godly, it's probably a sign that you're going to hell. And what good is all that training you did and all those sacrifices you made then? None. Where godliness is going to benefit you eternally. And it's actually it's amazing because God deserves anything you, could, you can do for him, right? He deserves awe. He deserves love. It's not like you're... You're doing something God doesn't deserve when you're, when you're godly. He deserves this. This is right. And you can't even do it on your own anyway. And so anything that you're doing, any way you're responding to God, you're, you're responding that way because he's at work in you. But even though he's the one who enabled you to do what you're supposed to do, he promises to reward you for doing it. You just have to appreciate the grace of God, the fact that godliness holds value for the life to come. This is how we should live, but God actually rewards us for living this way. I remember hearing a story about David Livingston, who was a missionary, and you know, he endured really difficult things for serving Christ. Like he was blinded in his eye, he lost the use of an arm to a lion. And yet he writes, as he looks back on his life, I've never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk, he says, of the sacrifice I've made, but can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God? Away with, su- with the word in such a view, with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger, all these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. And it's true, it is no sacrifice to pursue godliness, to make a priority out of this. It holds promise for the life to come. It's a value in every way. But listen, it holds promise for the life to come, but not just for the life to come either. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, godliness has value in this life and the life to come. And that's the emphasis. It's not just godliness is valuable for the life to come. It's also that godliness is valuable for this life as well. And, you know, we're always talking about the importance of self-denial and picking up our cross, and we, we should, obviously, because godliness does not sun, suddenly make your life in this world easy. But you know what? Godliness, while we say all that, godliness does make everything in your life better. It doesn't make it easy, but it does make it better. Godliness is good for you. In fact, Jonathan Edwards once put it like this. He says, it would be worthwhile to be godly, if it were only for the pleasantness of it. God has stuffed the pursuit of godliness with all kinds of blessings. And Edwards, you know, Edwards, these old Puritans, he notes a few. He says, godliness is good for you because one, godliness doesn't stop you from enjoying the pleasures of this life, but enables you to actually enjoy them better. That's kind of the point Paul was making up there in verses one through six. 
where these guys were saying, don't get married, don't eat certain foods. And he's like, that's from the demons, you know. Those are pleasures God created to be enjoyed the right way. Godliness enables you to enjoy the pleasures of this world better. Think about that. The world is amazing, and God's filled it up with different things to enjoy, and yet our sin makes it very difficult to enjoy anything for very long. You know that. Doesn't that frustrate you sometimes? Like, here's a pleasure, and it's, you know it's a pleasure. It's nothing but a pleasure, but you, your sin actually makes it hard for you to enjoy that pleasure. And what a growing relationship with God does is not take away the pleasures, but instead teaches us how to use these pleasures in a way that doesn't harm us. It's like pleasure is a tool, and tools work best when they're used for their purpose. A hammer is a great tool, for example, but not a good toothbrush. And earthly pleasures are tools that God has given. The problem is the ungodly man doesn't know how to use them. He keeps using the hammer as a toothbrush. And so he uses good pleasures in a bad way that actually turns the pleasure into sorrow. Where godliness the opposite. It enables you to use the pleasures the way they were intended, which means you get the joy out of them without the sorrow. Second, godliness is good for you because it keeps you from false pleasures, which look like they produce joy but actually produce pain. Three, it's good for you because even if there's anything difficult that we have to do because we're godly, those difficult decisions will in the end, only increase our joy. For example, repentance. Repentance seems like something sad, and yet when do you repent? You repent when you've seen how good and beautiful and merciful God is, which isn't so sad. So even as you sorrow, it's like joy. It's joy that made you sorrow. And you know that sorrow you have in repentance is going to produce joy because after you've genuinely repented, you're refreshed in the forgiveness God's offered you in Christ and you have peace in your, minds, in your mind in terms of your relationship with him, which is like the best. For godliness not only enables you to enjoy the pleasures in this world and keeps you from pleasures that aren't pleasures, it produces pleasures that are deeper and more profound than any ordinary earthly pleasures by themselves. There's a joy that the godly man experiences in his relationship with God that is far above any joy an ungodly man has ever experienced. And in fact, First Peter, what does he talk about when he talks about believers as they're suffering? He talks about their inexpressible joy. He says it's actually the joy you have as a believer is so deep and so profound that I can't even find the words. We can't even find the words to describe it. Godliness is good for you. If you, if you, why should we want godliness? Paul says we need to make a priority out of this, being in awe and, and, and loving God, being amazed by God, having this heart that's on fire for God. Why? It's good for you. If you take all the stuff that you might want to do and you might say is valuable to do, you know, like a relationship, good food, nice home, education, fitness, time, entertainment, and you put it all on this side, and then you put godliness here by itself, Godliness is ultimately more valuable, much more valuable than all this other stuff. Because it has value, Paul says, in this life and for the life to come. Which is why we need to also talk about how to become godly, right? How to become godly. This is what we should prioritize. This is why we should prioritize it. But how? How do we do it? How do we actually become godly people? I used to listen to a lot of sermons with my dad. And when he uh, took notes, he wasn't so much... Um, focusing on the outline. He was really looking for, he, he wanted to know how do, 
what does the text mean and how do I put it into practice? And so a lot of times as he was listening to preachers, he would be writing YBH down on his uh, piece of paper, YBH, YBH. And I would go to my dad afterwards and say, Dad, what does YBH mean? And, and he, he, he would write that because he was frustrated and he would say, YBH, what it means is, uh, yeah, yeah, but how? Yes, but how? It's, it's good to know that we're supposed to be godly, but how do we become godly? That's, that's the question. And if you look down, Paul gives us an answer. He doesn't only tell Timothy to be godly. He gives Timothy two commands, which help him know at least how to start. First, if we're going to become godly, there's something we need to avoid, specifically false teaching and foolish conversations. In Paul's words, verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. And then second, there's something we need to pursue. Train yourself for godliness. And I'm just going to focus your attention on that phrase, train yourself. The word uh, Paul uses is the one we get our English word gymnasium from. And obviously it was a word that meant to exercise, discipline. Exercise yourself for godliness. And it's an important little command worth taking our time on because it gives you some pretty clear direction for becoming a godly person. I think there's at least four things we can learn from this command about how to become godly. First, Paul assumes for a believer, becoming godly is possible. Paul's talking to Christians. If you're not a Christian, you're not going to be godly because your heart is spiritually dead. And so you need a miracle. You need new life. And God's merciful. And so you can come to him trusting in Jesus and pleading with you, pleading with him to make you a new person. It's like kind of you're standing before Niagara Falls and you're blind. How do you become in awe of Niagara Falls if you're blind? First step, miracle. You need to be able to see. How do you become a person who is in awe of God, godly? You need God to give you spiritual sight. And he's a merciful God. This is part of why he sent Jesus. So go to him and ask him to give you that spiritual sight. That's where godliness starts, becoming a believer. But if you are a believer, if you're here, you are a Christian, you can become godly. Hear me now. You can become godly. Obviously, you can become godly. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a command here. Paul wouldn't say, train yourself to be godly if it wasn't possible for you to become godly as a believer. So the reason I'm pointing this out is because you saying, I can't become godly, you need to understand that's like you saying, I'm not a Christian. Because you have the resources if you're a Christian to live a godly life. Cross-reference 2 Peter 1, 3. Peter says, God has already given you everything you need for life and godliness. In other words, there's not one thing you need to become more godly that God hasn't given you. And that is why Paul here can command us to train ourselves to become godly. He knows God has given us all the resources we need. And so this is one of the things I love about godliness because it's not like a lot of the other things in life. Because there are a lot of great things in life that uh, I could say you should pursue that you're not going to be able to achieve. Don't believe America all the time. Like, you can be whatever you want to be. It's not true. Because um, you don't actually have the resources. No matter how hard I work, I'm never going to beat LeBron James in a game of one-on-one. -on -one. I'm just not. Because I'm not seven foot tall or that good at basketball. But godliness is different. When we read about these great men of the faith who were in awe of God and, and filled with love for God, it would be wrong for us to think that they somehow had resources we didn't. 
I mean, there's not this special group of believers out there who have access to the necessary resources for becoming godly that we don't. In fact, I think this is one of the beautiful things, looking back on church history. You'll see uh, people from all sorts of different backgrounds were godly. There are guys who had no education but were godly. There were people who couldn't read but were godly. There were others who had their PhDs, some who were rich, some who were poor, some were men, some were women, some grew up in Christian homes, some in pagan homes. And yet from all these different backgrounds, you'll find people who have had, who've come to have such a deep fear and love for God that it's obvious that, that this command, no matter where you come from, if you're a Christian, you can obey this command. God has given you all the resources you need to become godly, and you need to preach that to yourself. You need to preach that to yourself. And I'm saying this because I've sat down with so many people who aren't pursuing godliness, and the excuse they give is because, like, I can't, I can't do that. I'm not the kind of person who can be godly, I guess. It's not my personality. Really, if you're the believer, you, if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the word of God, you have a new heart, you have the church, you have thousands of examples, you have Jesus praying for you, you have his resurrection power at work within you. God has been so good to you. What exactly do you think you're missing? Look, I know there are times where you want to give up. That's normal because godliness is not magic. It's hard work. You're going to have your ups and downs. There are going to be moments when your heart's on fire, and there are going to be other moments when you're just clinging on for spiritual life. But if you're a Christian, the first thing this command means is a steady growth in godliness is possible for all of us. Second, though, if that's going to happen, it also means it's going to require a sense of personal responsibility on your part. <laughs> if we look at the phrase, train yourself, train yourself, say that to yourself slowly, train yourself train because sometimes we see people who are godly and we think it happens almost by magic like hey they um, must just have it and I don't they must be one of those people who just spiritual I guess without recognizing all the work it took it's not magic we obviously cannot become godly without God working in us but at the same time if God is working in us we will be working on pursuing godliness and God uses our work to work godliness in us. Of course, we can't do anything without the grace of God. But one reason God gives us grace is so that we'll do something. While it's God who enables us to work, he does not do all the work for us. As believers, if we're going to become more godly, we must assume our responsibility to pursue it. It's kind of like an airplane. Jerry Bridges explains it like this. An airplane has two wings. And so if someone asks you, you know, which, which wing do you think is most important? on the airplane. Um, if you're going to fly, you can only have one wing. Which wing are you choosing? Um, you wouldn't choose because you need both. And godliness requires both dependence on God and discipline. And in 1 Timothy 4, Paul's focused on discipline. Train yourself. I think one of the most uh, common problems I've found in counseling, and it's weird, but it happens so often, is you'll meet people saying they, they, they want to do what's right, so they'll come for counseling or discipleship one time, and they'll say, I'm desperate. I've got to change. I've got to change. And, and yet you find once you start calling on them to make specific changes, they're not willing to commit themselves to the kind of life that will produce what's right. It's like they see someone who is loving God and who's effective in their service for God, 
And they say, you know what, I want to be like that. I really want to be like that, which is good. But the problem is you ask them to make choices that will help them become like that, and they won't make those choices because it's like they're expecting it should either magically happen or maybe other people should do it for them. And when it comes to godliness, it won't. God's gracious, and if you're a Christian, he's going to move you forward, but you shouldn't expect God to move you forward if you're not willing to commit yourself to using the means he's given to, to move you forward. You're standing there holding the shovel, and you're praying, Lord, please dig this hole. No, you've got a shovel. Start digging in prayer, I guess. It's, it's, it's hard to think, I know, it's hard to think of any area in life where you're going to improve without taking some responsibility and saying, I'm going to do what's necessary to become better, even if it hurts. Like, I'm going to lose weight without taking responsibility to watch my diet. No, I'm going to get a degree without taking responsibility to work hard at school. No, I'm going to become godly without taking personal responsibility. No, if you're going to become godly, and we need to become godly, make a commitment. Third, if you're, if you're a Christian, you can become godly. It's going to require work, and that work is going to take time. It's going to, it's going to involve a process. Obviously, the word train, just the word by itself, train is not something you usually do in a day. It's kind of like, um, imagine you're a fitness instructor, and you've got this guy who spent his whole life eating as much as he wants and not exercising, and he's a big boy. And he comes to you, and he says, I really want to get fit. I, I'm, this is my time. I am committed. And so he shows up one day, and you work out together, and um, when he's done, he looks in the mirror, and he's all angry at you because he's like, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. I worked out. I'm not in perfect shape. I fire you. And you would be like, come on, brother. It's a process, man. It's a process. And that's not just true for fitness. Spiritual growth is a process. One of the pictures Paul gives of growth is moving from childhood to spiritual adulthood. And that's a helpful picture because you don't grow to be an adult in one day. Godliness is not really a one-day thing. We sometimes overestimate the changes that can take place in our life by doing the right thing for one day or one month or one year and underestimate the difference making those right choices can have on our lives if we keep going for 5, for 10, for 15, for 20 years. I uh, once heard someone say, and, and this is a pretty intense statement, so get ready for it, but he said, if I could come to your house and spend one day with you, I would be able to tell whether or not you'll be successful. If I got up with you in the morning and went through the day with you, watching you for 24 hours, I could tell what direction your life is headed. And I don't know if that's always true, but he's talking about the importance of our daily choices. And that does apply to our growth and godliness. And not, not totally, because God does surprising things in our lives. He, he loves us. And so there are some ways that statement's not true. But here's one way it is. So much of your spiritual growth is influenced by your everyday small choices. And so if in faith as a believer you make a few key disciplined choices day after day after day, you'll begin to grow. Because normally the Holy Spirit doesn't just out of the blue with no connection to anything else move you forward in godliness. He generally uses certain means and typically works as you commit yourselves to those means over a long period of time. It's a, it's a process. Uh, a fourth, fourth. And here, maybe I'm reading too much into train yourself, so take it for what it's worth. But most effective training requires some sort of plan. 
It's like, say, say, imagine you met a military general. This guy's in the army. He has a group of new soldiers, and he says, I'm going to train them. These guys are going to be great soldiers. And you asked him, okay, how are you going to train these guys to become great soldiers? And he says, I've got no idea. You would think, oh, that doesn't really sound like military training normally. That doesn't sound quite like how it goes because training assumes a plan. Which is why when Paul says train yourself, I think he expects you know you need to make a plan for becoming more godly. Which means what exactly? It means if we say this is a priority, this is supposed to be our culture, we prioritize godliness at CBC, and I meet you after church and say, okay, what's your plan? And you don't have one. It's going to be hard to expect that you grow as quickly as you should. What's your plan? If this is a priority, what's your plan? If uh, it should be something specific, like this is what I'm going to do, this is when I'm going to do it, this is how I'm going to do it. It should be something doable, like read the whole Bible in a day is probably not doable for most of us. It, specific, doable, and it should be something regular. And the good news is we don't have to make the whole plan up because God's written this whole book, the Bible, to help us make a plan for growing in godliness. And as we look at this book, it's clear there are a couple basic elements we've got to pay attention to real quickly. First, if you're going to become more godly, what's your plan? The first part of your plan is you, you can't keep filling your mind with worldly junk. You have to be willing to fight sin. Read Colossians chapter 3. Paul's talking about Christ being our life, and he's explaining, okay, Christ is our life. How do we live in a way that reflects that Christ is our life? And the first thing he says that we need to do is put to death what is earthly in us, like sexual immorality and impurity and greed. And he starts there because there's no way you're going to grow in your all of God and love for God if you're sitting around filling your mind with sexual sin and greed or constantly thinking about material possessions. If you are prioritizing godliness, part of your plan has to be to stop filling your minds with wicked earthly stuff or even triviality. Second, part of your plan you have to make a plan to pursue God personally there's nobody who ever got stronger physically by just going to the gym walking around and watching others lift weights to get stronger you have to lift the weights and you won't get stronger spiritually unless you personally make worshiping God a regular part of your daily practice when you get up in the morning or at some point in your day God is God he's awesome you, you need to find a way to be in all of him. You need to go to God's word and you need to ask, God, show me how great you are. Show me how great Jesus is. One of the really humbling practices that I've started recently is, okay, tomorrow I'm going to ask myself in the morning, what did I, what is one new thought I learned about God today? So on Sunday, on Monday, I'm going to ask, what is one new thing or great thing at least that I learned about God today that causes me to worship. And if there's a lot of days that go by where I can't think of anything from the day before, one thing that was amazing about God or one truth that is remarkable, I'm in trouble. <laughs> you know, like It's not surprising that I'm not in awe of God if I don't have anything, not even one thing. When I come to study the word of God in the morning, so often you know, the heart is cold, but it's like, as we've said before, it's like, camping in the rain you know you're cold you're freezing you're shivering but you've got to start that fire you, you you that's like your only option it's got to get hot 
And so you don't just give up because the first match doesn't work. If you're cold, shivering, in the rain, your family's like, hey, I want to go home, I want to go home. You're like, hey, we're getting this fire started somehow. And so every day as we go to God's word, if we're going to become godly, we need to go to God's word on a regular basis looking and praying that he will help us see his glory. Third, obviously, this is part of why we have church, that part of your plan is take advantage of the teaching you get here in church. Take advantage of the opportunities we have to sing and worship together. It's part of why we gather, but you have to work at getting the most from it. Um, I had someone, someone come recently and say, can you help me benefit more from the way that you preach? And that was a good question that a person who wants to be godly would ask if they're not benefiting. They're like, hey, please help me. You want to take advantage of this time you have. And then fourth, pursue intentional biblical friendships. In other words, if you want to become godly, hang out with godly people. <laughs> And, of course, that's why we're starting life groups and transformation groups. But if those are going to work, we have to come deliberately and intentionally seeking to develop the kind of friendships where we're helping each other become godly. And we want to learn to become more godly ourselves. How? Well, let me tell you a couple simple steps you can make part of your plan for developing intentional friendships for the pursuit of godliness. Be willing to sacrifice comfort and time for building friendships with godly people. That's where the word priority comes in. Because we would all say we value friendships with godly people, but a lot of people don't have deep friendships. And I'll tell you one reason why. It's because it's not comfortable. And it takes time. So there's times where it's going to be awkward, where you just want to be by yourself, whatever, but make godly friendships, make friendships with godly people a priority. And when you are with godly people, open your mouth and ask them questions. Invite godly people into your life and ask for help. Because you realize you can make it hard for a godly person to know how to talk to you. And one reason is because you don't say, what do you think? Or am I wrong? Or is there another way of doing this? Or how should I think? Or please help me in this area. We all know how hard it is when someone shares an opinion that is so obviously wrong. And they don't, they, and you have to find a way to, to tell them that opinion is so obviously wrong. And it's very awkward because they're not actually asking for, for help. Don't, don't, don't be that person. I, I know, I've seen situations where there's someone I know who's really godly and wise in a certain area. And he's with someone who's doing terrible in that area. And the person who's doing terrible in that area never asks for help. And so it's awkward for the person who's wise because he has to figure out a way to offer advice without just preaching at the person. And it's kind of sad, you know. Even if you just learn to ask good questions when you're with godly people, like what are you learning? Or what amazes you about God? Or how does the gospel refresh you? Those should be normal questions. Otherwise, we can miss out on so much benefit. You want to try to make good conversations with others about Jesus easier. And you know when you're going to start doing all of this, this plan that I'm talking about? Um, it's when godliness is, is not just something we say we value, but when it's actually top priority. And Paul is saying to Timothy here, it should be priority. It should be what we want. Not just looking religious or doing all the right things, but having this heart that's filled with all for God and love for God because you know God 
and you know what God's done for you through Jesus. Why? Because we trust God. We know he loves us, and he says godliness has value for this life and this life to come. There's nothing more important than your relationship with God. So how are you going to live? How are we going to live as a church uh, this week? How are we going to live in a way that makes it clear this is our culture? <laughs> uh, godliness, pursuing godliness is actually uh, what is uh, top priority. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It's so full. Thank you for these patient, dear uh, believers who come week after week to hear you, you speak through your word and who have to work to listen. And we're grateful for your Holy Spirit at work and in our lives that we would want to hear you speak to us. But we ask that you would take what we uh, looked at today and you would help it not just to be something that we know and something that we're familiar with, but actually makes no impact in our lives, but that we would, we would take the next step and uh, that you would motivate us as we think about even what we're going to think about right now with communion, that you would use the gospel to motivate us to be in all. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name.